But I want you to see what he says in, in verse 13. Well, we'll start in verse 12, which is what we talked about last night or last week. He says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, we talked about that last week, but here's where we left off. He says, live in peace with one another. Okay, so the idea of peace is an interesting idea. And, and, and living in peace with one another is something that you've got to say when you're talking to a church. Because you put a bunch of people together and say, you're a family now, and God is in your midst, and you're, you need to work together, and you need to function together as a body, as a, you're, you're being fitted together as a body, fitted together as a building. And so we're put together with all these other people. Some of them that are like us, some of them that are very different than us, some of them that have personalities that might clash with your personality, some of them that might have opinions that, that very widely range, and some of them, even those opinions about God. So he says, live in peace with one another. And we could take that just to mean don't rub each other the wrong way. But if we try to avoid rubbing each other the wrong way, most of the time we just try to, (laughs) most people's solution to that is just stay away from one another. You know, (laughs) I can't rub you the wrong way if I don't rub you at all. You know what I mean? Like if we don't bump up against each other. So some people might read live in peace with one another as just Just stay in your own lane. Don't worry about them. Worry about you. And there's a degree of truth to that. You know, we we did read in this very letter, just not long before this, he did say, mind your own business. And in the next next letter, he's going to tell you not to be a busybody. So there is a level of truth to that. But the body is meant to function working together. So we have a very me and Jesus attitude, and that attitude is good, but that attitude by itself is not enough. God didn't just call you to a you and Jesus relationship. Well, he did, but not just you and the head of Jesus, not just you and the head of Christ, but you and all of Christ. And what does he call the body of Christ? It's the church, right? We are the body of Christ. So you can't say, I want a relationship with Christ and not embrace all of Christ. It would be so much easier if we could, right? Sometimes it's just so much easier just to say, I just want a relationship with that God that I can't see, but I know he's there and I can hear him and I want a relationship with him and I really don't want to have to mess with people because he's perfect, but they're not. And the other thing is, you know, because you can't see God, sometimes you can ignore him when you don't agree with him, Right? It's a bad idea, but we do it, right? Did you hear something from God? No, I didn't hear anything from God. I think that was the devil talking. I mean, the devil told me to go over to that person's house and tell them I was sorry. That couldn't have been God because they were wrong. People have a way of being God's instrument to make us more like himself and say things to us we might not have heard on our own. Because, you know, when you're driving a car and you have blind spots, we have blind spots as human beings. There are things that I might have tuned out a little bit and somebody else can speak that to me and I can see Jesus in a way I didn't expect to see Jesus when I'm looking at my brothers and sisters in Christ. So when he says live in peace with one another, he's going to tell you what that looks like. And he goes on and he says this, we urge you, brethren, 
to admonish the unruly. That word admonish means to warn. So already we're seeing that peace isn't just leaving one another alone. Because now he says, warn the unruly. Now, what does he mean by unruly? This word could be undisciplined. Now, he's talked about those that aren't working, that are lazy and are just kind of floating through life. And he's saying, you got to warn them. That's not the way we're called to live. Have you ever had that conversation with anyone? It's not a fun conversation. <laughs> you see, people don't come to an unruly lifestyle. Um, they don't come to it by careful thought and consideration and say, I think this is the best way to live. They come to that by slowly, slowly drifting away from the principles that God has laid out for them, drifting away from certain things. And so when you usually talk to somebody, confront somebody about this, it's very rare that they're ready to hear it and they want to hear it. And I would, I'd go ahead and say, it's probably not everybody's business in the church to talk to that person about that issue. And I, I don't know if I have a perfect formula for you about who should talk to them. But let, let's just say you don't look around you and find all the unruly people and go around warning them. Um, God has a way of setting this up, doesn't he? But admonish the unruly. Don't leave them. I mean, listen, do we believe that God's way is the best way? Yeah, so if God's way is the best way, and God's way is always out of love, then when God brings correction through another member of the body, or redirection, or encouragement, or comfort, or a nudge, or a goad here or there, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And so any admonishment's always out of love, right? I mean, if you're warning somebody about something, it's because you care about them. If you don't care about them, don't bother trying to admonish them. If you can't love them, don't try to correct them. Because correction without love is just usually just, a, just abuse. You know, it just doesn't go well. So he says, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. What's faint-hearted? I mean, faint-hearted... You think about a faint-hearted person. This is a person who wants to follow the Lord, want, believes the Word, believes this and wants to do it, but they're, they're the folks, and, and, and we all have known them, and maybe you've been this person in different phases of your life where you wanted to believe it, maybe you did believe it, but when things got hard, you kind of backed off, and you're that, you're that person, I shouldn't say you because maybe let's just talk about a hypothetical person that's not you, right? The hypothetical faint-hearted person. These are the people that are, that sometimes, you know, they believe, they want to believe, they want to fight, they want to follow the Lord. When things get difficult, they fall back. Now, what does it say? Does it say we throw them out of the boat? You're slowing us all down. You are wrecking the average. Just get off. <laughs> no. Encourage the faint-hearted. The word encourage in our language comes from the word to give heart. To the faint-hearted, you give them heart. How do you give them heart? You speak to them. You tell them what they may already know, but have at this point had a hard time believing. You stand by them when they're about to quit. You hold their arm and say, I'm not going to quit. You're not going to quit. We're standing here together. You know, too many times we allow arrogance to creep in. And forget that we were faint-hearted at one point in time. And when we see someone else faint-hearted, 
There's, if, you do, if you allow this, it's not the nature of God, but if you allow this attitude in of, of arrogance, of, of I'm, I'm somehow spiritually further along, then what can happen is if you let that come in, you eventually resent the faint-hearted. You resent them for not being what they should be. Instead of remembering, hey, there was probably a point where you were that guy. You were that person. You were the faint-hearted one. What do you do? Encourage them. Don't let them fall behind. Go along and, and, and speak the word to them. Love them. Help them. Nudge them if they need nudging. But stand beside them when everyone else is giving up on them. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. This is, seems to go together nicely, doesn't it? The weak are not ashamed to us. They're not a burden on us. They're not an anchor to our ship. They're part of our body. And I, I believe that, that because of the nature of who God is, um, I refuse to believe that the faint-hearted will always be faint-hearted and the weak will always be weak. I believe that the work that God does and the work that God does through us, the faint-hearted become the encouragers. The weak become the strong. Amen? And do you believe that? I mean, I'm sure there's people that take longer to make that transition, but if we can't see, if we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, how can they? You've got to believe what God believes about them. You've got to say, you might seem weak now, but I see strength. Because the weak you have, the weakness you have, or the strength you have, is never going to be found within you. You're not strong because you come from good blood. You're not strong because somehow you're just a better person or you just went through different stuff. I mean, your strength, if it's coming from anywhere, the strength we're going to need in these days to do what God's called us to do, that strength only comes from him. So every single person that has the spirit of Christ within them has all the strength in the world. They need to do whatever God's called them to do, right? So therefore, let the weak say, I am strong. God said to Zerubbabel, it's not by might nor by your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He says, you go ahead and finish what everyone else said you're never going to finish. You go ahead and finish the temple that everyone said you'd never complete. And you, you, you stick up that, that last final piece of the temple. When everyone says you couldn't do it, you're going to do it by my strength. And when you put the, the final piece, the capstone on the top, then you shout grace, grace to it. Because it's all going to be done by my spirit. Help the weak. Be patient. With everyone. Really, this is us being Christ like as Jesus has been to us, right? We're just supposed to be to other people what he's done for us. So I'm admonishing the faint hearted because when I was faint hearted, he didn't kick me out. He didn't say, I'm looking for a few good men. You're not it, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I remember uh, uh, watching a DVD series on the Navy SEALs Hell Week. I mean, and, and the, the goal of Hell Week is pretty much like it sounds, just to make you, push you to your limit and beyond your limit. And the reason is, it's not necessarily to make you stronger, although it will. At that point, Hell Week, there are different parts of the Navy SEALs training that is to make you a better soldier, to make you better prepared. This is not necessarily to prepare you. It's more to just weed out the weak ones. 
right? Just make sure they quit now so we don't keep spending money training them, right? But if the church did that, we'd have an elite group and we'd have a very tiny group. (laughs) And here's the deal, is that some of the weakest come out being some of the strongest because it's the work of Christ. See, the Navy SEALs can't turn you into a different human being. But Jesus can turn you into someone different altogether. Amen. Amen. And so you just look through the Bible and just see how God just loves picking the people nobody else thinks you should pick. He loves it. He goes out of his way. He picks women that can't have kids just to have really amazing kids. He picks towns that are just out of the middle of nowhere, hick towns. He says, I'm going to do something great here. He picks people that are the, in the, smallest, the smallest in their family, the smallest family in their tribe, the smallest tribe in Israel. Yeah, I'm going to do something through you. He loves doing this. When you look at David's mighty men, these men of war, these men that did great exploits, so we go, man, they should make a movie about these guys. And you see how they started. That verse where it just says, and David's running away from Saul, and it says all of these people that were in debt, of no account in society, the rejects of society came to David. Why? Because they had nowhere else to go. And they came to David and he became a captain over them. Thus begins the great story of the mighty man. Somehow there's a huge gap of time between the bad news bearers joining David, the lovable losers, not even lovable, but it's just losers joining David. And we don't, get to, we don't get privy to what happened in between. We just see at the end, these are the mighty men yes. that are taking on armies by themselves, that are chasing lions into a pit on a snowy day. It's just things like that that you'd never expect of normal people. And so we have to remember that I need to admonish the unruly because if, if the unruly are not admonished, they'll stay unruly. And they won't fulfill what God's put in front of them. We need to encourage the faint-hearted because if you don't encourage them, they fall back. They fall down. And if someone doesn't pick them up and say, you can do this, then they just stay down. Or they miss what God's trying to do. You help the weak because we were all weak. And we could see ourselves, probably everybody in the room, at some point in time could see yourself on the one side where you needed help, and now you can see yourself on the other side where you can be the helper, right? Because that's the way the kingdom of God works. I remember the apostle Paul said, we, we were, uh, said we've been comforted by the God of all comfort, and, and we've received this comfort. And the word comfort in the, in, that he's using is not a word for there, there, soft pillows comfort. It's, it's you're about to die, and somebody stands beside you and says, you can keep going, comfort. And he says, now we're going to comfort you so that you can comfort one another with the same comfort that you've been comforted with. That's the way the kingdom of God works because the deal is if we're just making copies of copies, if if I took a cassette tape like we used to do back when when all the sermons were on tape and just made a duplicate of that tape and then I made a duplicate of the duplicate and a duplicate of the duplicate of the duplicate, every copy would be worse. But now... We make copies from a digital master file and it never loses anything every time you make a copy because it's got the same source material as the first one. See, as believers, what God puts into us, we don't lose anything by pouring it out. 
You know what I mean? We, we're not losing by giving, right? This is what we've come to believe. When I give, it takes nothing from me. That's what people got to understand about God. God, don't waste your grace on me. God, you, you take care of them. I'm okay. You, you, you need to worry about them. God is infinite. It takes nothing from him to give to you. In fact, it adds to who he is. And how can you add to in, infinity? Well, I don't know. But, but the scripture seems to say that, that, he is, that his, when his body is enlarged, that's the fulfillment of what he wants on the earth. So we lose nothing by pouring out. We're constantly refreshed. Be patient with everyone. Everyone should have a capital E in my own mind because everyone means everyone. You ever looked at the fruit of the Spirit and realized that you wouldn't need the fruit of the Spirit if you lived on an island by yourself? You only need a couple of them. You'd only need a couple. Most of them are, are instigated by people that aren't fun all the time and people that might, might bother you and people that might hit you the wrong way. You only really need patience when someone tests your patience. Isn't that right? Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And we'll talk about those last two verses more uh, in the following weeks. But I just want to stop there with this always seek after which is good for one another and for all people. In Ephesians 4, it talks about the body of Christ growing. And not just growing in size, but growing in maturity growing into Christ. And it says that the body is held together, it's knit together, it's held together. It functions by what every joint supplies. And I've made this point before, and others have better than I have. But it's important that we realize that what fuels the body, what makes the body work, as far as his spiritual body that he talks about, the church, is the joining of parts. It's by what every joint supplies. We are parts but the joint, God is in the joint. The supply is in the joint. The anointing is in the joint. So often when people come together and what I don't have, you have. And what you have, I need. And God designed us with that in mind. He could have made us all just self-sufficient pods that don't need anybody else. But that's absolutely not the way he designed us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, you guys will know this well. He says, 1 Corinthians 12 and where's a good place to start? My goodness. Verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And that's the part that probably gets a lot of us is that it's not as we desire, it's as he desires. He puts us where he wants us. He fits us in the places that he, he designed. If there were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. 
And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Um, I think sometimes in my own life, I've looked at, at, at my relationship with Jesus and I've looked at it as a position of strength to be able to say, I don't need anyone but Jesus. Right? It's kind of sounds, sounds, it sounds like a faith statement, doesn't it? Yes. I don't need anyone but Jesus. I mean, you could put that on a bumper sticker. That sounds good. Yes. And there's truth to that, but you have to consider that Jesus is going to make part of himself available through parts of the body and is not going to let you take a shortcut and say, well, can you just do it without them? Because they're annoying. <laughs> or they, they're just, I don't, I, don't, I don't like the way they present it. I don't like the way they talk to me. I don't like, and I, I think that God sometimes giggles and says, no, it's going to happen this way. Have fun. Because <laughs> in doing so, he's going to make us more like him. Because you can't be more like Jesus until you learn that his love covers a multitude of sins and missed expectations and annoyances and that, that somehow in the friction of two people, uh, iron is sharpening iron and our rough edges are being smoothed out. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. You can't, you're not allowed to say, I don't need anybody else. You can't say that. It sounds spiritual, but you're not allowed to say it. The boss says we can't say that kind of stuff around here. We just can't say, I don't need you. Now listen, if you get stranded on an island, castaway style, and it's just you and Wilson, then all you need is Jesus. <laughs> His grace is sufficient for you. Right? Have fun. As you know... And, and if God wants to use Wilson to teach you something, that's fine too. But when you see the Apostle Paul go to different towns and, and, and places that have never heard the gospel, and he's the tip of the spear. He's, he's preaching in places where the, Christ has not been named. You see him function in a bunch of, he functions as an apostle, a prophet, a pastor, teacher, evangelist. He does all of it. But when he comes back to the church in Jerusalem or the church in Antioch, what do you see? You see Agabus come. Agabus is a prophet. And when Paul is around Agabus, Paul doesn't act like a prophet. Paul submits to the prophetic voice in Agabus. When you see him around the other apostles, he defers. Sometimes he stands up and sometimes he defers. In other words, he recognizes that when I'm by myself and I'm the only guy out there preaching, there's a grace on me to be here alone. And, a, and God is everything I need. So you get a missionary in Africa and they're by themselves in the tribal jungle. Whatever that village needs, God's going God's to use that person to do it. But he's, I believe he's going he's gonna to do it in such a way that when you come back to the body of believers, you can't just push everybody aside and say, I've been in the jungle by myself. I don't need anyone here. No, he says, now that you're amongst believers, you're going to need these people. And in doing so, it's going to probably cause more growth in your life than you ever had just if you were by yourself, just you and a Bible. Thank God for you and a Bible. But I've seen the most growth in my life when people pushed me to a point that I needed to grow. Do you know what I mean? And the, I, I'm not saying that it was right 
for, the, for some person to act this way or it was right for me to act the way I acted. But I'll tell you, it made me more like Jesus because that patience worked in me, that love, that long-suffering, that, that joy, that peace, that, that kindness, that gentleness, self-control. You don't need a lot of self-control with just you and Jesus, but you sure need it around the body of Christ. He says here, if I were to keep reading in 1 Corinthians 12, on the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Notice the phrase, seem to be weaker. You see, because God does not, God does not leave us in a place of spiritual weakness. Now, in our weakness, his power is made perfect. Isn't that right? But when his power is working in us, then the weak say, I'm strong. We don't keep saying we're weak because we're strong in him. We recognize that our weaknesses, our natural weaknesses are areas where his anointing, his strength, his power is made perfect in us. So we don't worry about our weaknesses. In fact, Paul said, I can glory in the fact that without him, I couldn't have done any of this. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. But he says, there are parts of the body that will always seem to be weaker, but they're necessary. I mean, you think about it, the parts of your body that are most vulnerable, that are most fragile, are some of your most vital parts of your body. Right? I mean, that's, you you don't say, I mean, your rib cage is important. Why? Because it's, it's protecting some vital organs that if they, they, they were just on the outside of your body, they wouldn't last. And he says this, verse 23. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body. And this is what I'm getting at. Look at it. God has so composed the body. He's the one that designed it like this. It's the way he wants it. He so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that, which mem- that member which lacked. So, you know, a guy like me on a stage, I get honor just because I'm talking to people. People say, oh, there, he's doing what God called him to do. And they might come up and, and tell you afterwards, you know, that really encouraged me. That really blessed me. And that's good. But there are people doing things for God. They're not as visible as I am. There are people doing things for the kingdom that that nobody is seeing on a regular basis, but it's just as valuable, if not more valuable. And in those areas, God is responsible for bestowing even more abundant honor on them because they did what God called them to do even though it wasn't pretty. They did what God called them to do even though no one patted them on the back for it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pat them on the back. It just means they did it knowing that maybe nobody's going to notice what I'm doing. I've told you this before. I've used this analogy before, but I think it fits. I didn't marry Tia because she had the prettiest liver in Spokane. Right? Right? I didn't say I'm so attracted to your liver, honey. It just makes you who you are. But take her liver away. See how long she lasts. Right? You might say, I love your eyes. I was drawn to your eyes. But she could live without the eyes. Mm-hmm. Can't live without some of those other parts that aren't pretty. They don't look good. Maybe, maybe some of you can find beauty in them, but they don't look good. You know, there's a reason that you don't put pictures of your organs on the wall. I mean, Dr. Deploy, I don't think you do that either. But we don't put pictures on the wall of our, of our inner organs. 
Maybe some of you do, and cool. All right, I want to come to your house sometime. <laughs> but those members are vital. They might not be as presentable, but they're vital. And then he says this, and this is the part where it's going to tie back to what we just read in 1 Thessalonians. So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. We know that God cares for us, don't we? What is care? Care is more than emotion. Care is taking care of someone. Care is, is, is helping, is loving, is looking after. And it says the members have, may have the same care for one another. We know God cares for us, but it is just so important that we realize we need to care for one another. Then he says this. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's the way it should look. Rather than if one is honored, the others become jealous. It should be if one is honored, we all rejoice. We should have the attitude on the micro scale and the macro scale. Right here in this church, if somebody is being honored, blessed, whatever, we all rejoice. If someone is suffering, we suffer with them. We, we say this is, this is, we don't just say, well, too bad for you. Hope things get better. We enter into it and say, how can we help you? Because when you're suffering, we're suffering. When you're hurting, we're here hurting. When another, on a, on a different scale, when, when another church in town is having revival and their doors are busting wide open, they can't hold all the people. We don't look and go, man, why isn't that happening here? And Oh, gee, I, I just, oh, it just makes me wish we were like that. No, we rejoice. Praise God. It's part of our family. It's part of our body. It's the kingdom. Right? If another church is having a hard time, we don't go, see, I told you. I told you they're going to have a hard time, and you knew it, because, you know, they should do more things more like us. No, they're part of our body. And if we can help them, we're going to help them. That needs to be on this level and that level and every level. You know, I, I often come back in 1 Corinthians, in another part of this letter, he, he says something that... that bothers me at times. He talks about that situation where a man had started sleeping with his father's wife. It's a stepmom. And we can infer, we don't know this for sure, but we can infer that maybe he had, you know, he wasn't just a new believer. He had some position in the church. Maybe he was a leader. Maybe he was just somebody that had been there for a while. And the church didn't say anything or do anything about it. And Paul said, you've all become arrogant. You should have mourned. And that, that verse is always a little tough because I'd like to believe your issues are your issues and mine are mine. And if you're not doing the right thing, then that's not my problem. I might try to help you, but ultimately God's just going to say, what did you do? But the way he writes that makes it sound like we all have to say, you're hurting, so we're hurting. This is hurting you, so it's hurting us. He said, you become arrogant. You all should have mourned. I don't know if you can think of a specific time in which the church has sensed, had a sense of mourning that someone was stuck in rebellion. But I can remember some times where I thought that was true. 
And maybe there were just times we didn't know about it. And maybe times we just, once again, we're arrogant and just said, well, that's their problem. It's not mine. And by rebellion, I don't mean rebellion against people in the church. I mean rebellion against God, like, like the guy sleeping with his stepmom. You know, that's, that's rebellion. He knew better. It wasn't that nobody told him that was wrong. He knew that was wrong. He just said, it's not wrong for me. I can do it. I'm going to do it anyway. And no one saw that as a big enough problem to do something about it. The reason I bring that up is it, it, it really drives home the point. We are not isolated from one another. And what he just said here, if one member hurts, we're all hurting. Amen. That's how you know I made a good point. <laughs> That's my first one tonight. <laughs> One's hurting, we're hurting. So what do you do when a part of your body's hurting? You do something about it, right? Tend to it. That's a great, great phrase, Anita. You tend to it. You don't just say, well, too bad for that part of the body. Why? Because if that, body's hurt, that part of the body's hurting, everything else, your brain just sends, tends to send some focus on that and says, hey, hey, over here. Your brain's sending pain signals. This is not right. You should do something about this. You don't just cut it off and say, well, that finger's hurting. Not anymore, it's not. You do something about it. Pain, pain is, is not fun, but it's, it's a good indicator. It really is helpful. And it tells us when something's not right. And when something's not right, every other part of the body works on making that part right. And we understand that the great physician, the healer, is Jesus. I can't fix you. Nobody in this church can be in themselves the fixer, the great Messiah, but we have that spirit in us. And I believe this. You see, Jesus is not physically walking the earth healing people, but he is healing people all over the planet. How is he doing it? Can he, can he send an angel into your room? Absolutely he can. But the primary way that Jesus said he wanted to do it was that believers would lay hands on the sick and they would recover. So I believe God's primary method of healing it's not his only method, but his primary method of healing is other believers. Amen. Spirit of God working through them. And if one part of the body is hurting, so what we just read, admonish the unruly. That, that unruly lifestyle is going to lead them to a bad place, so warn them. Step in before it becomes too late. Encourage the faint-hearted. If there's somebody in the church that every time something hard comes, they fall back. They seem to they they just can't seem to stand. And 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 everybody looks and says, "Well, why can't you just believe God?" And well, they try. And instead of judging where they're at, come and stand beside them and say, "If you go down, I go down. We're in this together. Help the weak. Yes. Be patient with everyone, as He's been patient with me and you." Thank God, I believe that's how God wants to heal the body. Through the members of the body. Through us. We're going to close with that thought. Be at peace with one another. I hope that tonight, if you took nothing else, that you realize that being at peace with one another might be different than, than some people's idea of peace. Being at peace with one another doesn't just mean an absence of strife, even though that's a big part of it. Let's think about what unity means. God wants us to be in unity, doesn't he? 
You know how many times you walk into the mall and you walk in and there's so many people around you? How many times have you walked in the mall and not gotten a fight with even one person? Right? I would hope more times than you can count. Because if you're somebody that's like, well, maybe a handful of times, we need to pray for you now, right? You walk, all the time, you're walking into crowded places and not starting fights, not getting into disagreements with people. You're just moving through there. But are you in unity with them? No. You're not, you're not fighting, but you're also not unified. Church can't become like the mall. It can't become like a concert where we all just attend and leave each other alone and enjoy the show and then go home. That can't be what the body looks like. That'd be what it looked like if we were each individual bodies, but we're not. We're each individual parts that make a body. And we can't say, I don't need you. So I encourage you. I want you to really think about this and pray about this in the next week. When are the times that I've admonished the unruly? Is it my place every time? And what would I do if that situation arose? Like I said, I don't think it's everybody's job all the time to admonish the, admonish the unruly person. If that were the case, they would be so overwhelmed with people coming at them. Right? So I think God's got a way to put certain people in certain people's lives, that you have a place in their life, you have a voice in their life, they've let you in, you can say something. When have I encouraged the faint-hearted and how would I encourage the faint-hearted? When have I helped the weak and how could I help the weak? And in all these things, remember, it's not you, it's him that's gonna do it, amen? Be patient with everyone. Thank God for his patience towards us. As King David wrote, If not for his mercy, we'd all be consumed. Thank God. Amen. When you look at it that way, it's so easy to be patient with people. When you look at the trillions of dollars he forgave us, it's pretty hard to shake someone down for 200. Right? Amen. Let's stand up. Let's thank God.